Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to Business and Property Development. Well, here we are at the beginning of Season 3. This year features an amazing lineup of guests, so I'm very excited to be sharing those with you over the coming months. To kick things off, I have a fantastic conversation with Ludwina Dortovic to share. Ludwina is the founder and CEO of a unique PropTech platform called The Room Exchange. Now, The Room Exchange is Australia's first verified home sharing platform. We live in a particularly interesting time when it comes to housing. There is significant divergence on both sides of the ownership spectrum. On the one side, the cost of home ownership is on the rapid rise due to inflation and interest rate increases, yet we also have a critical shortage of rental properties available. In the middle of this lies the room exchange, and what I meant by unique is that the room exchange has the potential to benefit both homeowners and tenants. I wanted to speak with Ludwina to find out more about the value that the Room Exchange brings to this issue and to better understand Ludwina's journey in business and entrepreneurship. She has an absolutely inspiring story to tell. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ludwina Dortovic. Ludwina, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you with me today. I'm so happy to be here. We've been prepping this for a while and it's good to actually finally get to the conversation. There are a couple of key themes which I'd love to touch on today with you. The first being your entrepreneurial journey over the past, I understand, 25 years. The next is your most recent business venture, The Room Exchange. And what I would love to unpack with you is the key ideas behind the PropTech platform the key problems that it solves, but also how you've gone about taking the room exchange from just an idea into a fully-fledged product to market, which, if I'm also correct, has been equity-backed. Yes. Yeah, which is an amazing achievement. Yeah, I think there's a lot to go through today. Thank you. Yeah, looking forward to it. So let's get into it. I wanted to ask you a couple of brief questions first to paint a picture of you for our audience. So if you could tell me where were you born and where did you grow up? So I was born in Leeton, New South Wales. I... I only lived there for a few years and then my sort of really early childhood was in Sydney and then we moved to Howlong, which is just outside of Albury. And I remember the house that we had built, the, it was a paddock. But the, at the time, the local region was doing this big promotion for encouraging people to actually go down there and build. And they were offering like a fixed rate interest rate for 25 years. I was about seven at the time. I'm 56 now, so roughly 50 years ago. So you can imagine the great deal that it actually gave my parents to be paying $25 a week of their mortgage. Family home's still there. My brother lives in it. But I left school at 15, left home at 16 and then moved to Sydney. Where did that take you from Sydney? You would have been working from an early early stage then, right? I actually started working at 10. I was kind of plucked from the street and asked to model. I'm half Fijian Indian and half Dutch and no one would ever pick my background. I've won thousands of dollars on it over the years, actually. It's funny, <laughs> people trying to bet where I come from. But if you can imagine, my brother and I were the only coloured kids in town pretty much. So we're kind of considered exotic looking. So I started modelling really young. Getting a job wasn't sort of really a foreign concept for me. I was working in a supermarket part-time, 
I think my very first job job was at McDonald's. So when I moved to Sydney, it was just kind of like, well, get a job at McDonald's. And then I was like, I don't want to work at McDonald's anymore. I want to work in hospitality. So I got a job at the coolest bar in Sydney. It was really interesting that time making that decision at 16 to go to Sydney was a a very strong reference point in my life. I talk a lot about if you reflect back on your life and look at the key moments where you made a decision. I, I say it, and this is going to be a book one day, just say yes and figure it out later. And I've done a lot of those things in my time and there's always been this kind of inbuilt, I just, I call it chutzpah, I just call it, have, I just had the gumption or the nerve or I've always kind of had that inner drive. And I think a lot of that comes from huge amounts of uncertainty I had as a child, you know, that sort of sense of finding that place where I felt that I belonged or that was my gig or that was really having the opportunity to discover myself. And also, too, moving to Sydney it was the first time I started seeing people who looked like me. And so I grew up with with a lot of racism and, you know, identity issues. And I guess that uncertainty for me is, as a driver has been ne- the need to balance that out. Like I don't want to have absolute certainty, but I want somewhere in the middle. It sounds like you've your experiences have allowed you to be okay with taking a step forward and then figuring it out, which in business is is all you can really do. I mean, nobody has any idea about how it's going to pan out, can try and plan for it, but it doesn't actually, you know, might not work out exactly the same way. So. Yeah, that's right. And there's something that I, I recently, I do a lot of journaling and, and it's very helpful for me to, for self-analysis and coming up with realisations and for processing challenges and issues that I have. I'm also an artist and I was doing a painting for my son for his 30th and, and I actually, I called the painting 85%. And he laughed at me because my son's a perfectionist. And I keep saying to him, Jordan, 85%, actually 75% is good enough, but why don't you just try for 85%? Because, you know, if, if you wait for something, if you wait until you're absolutely certain that it's right, you'll either be too late or you'll have invested too much money into it that you have to go back and unravel and start again. You've got to have the courage to go, okay, I've got a rough idea. And really you don't know what, the customers are going to think about your product or how they're going to use it. And that's been a massive realisation. I'm happy to talk about that when we start talking about the room exchange, but what you think your product or service is going to be and how the customers are going to use it are two very different things. And if you don't have the ability to let it go and let them drive it, if you have that really strong need to be in control and that absolute certainty, you're going to lose. The day I decided I wanted to work in hospitality, I was 16. You know, everyone, don't shoot me. I know you're supposed to be 18, you know, to work in clubs and stuff, but this was the 80s, all right? And as long as you said you were 18, they believed you and always passed. So I I thought I was in Bondi, Bondi Junction, and there was a few bars around there. So I thought, how am I going to meet people working? But I know I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to sit in the spa bath at the gym and eventually I'll meet someone that knows someone who works in a club here in Bondi. So <laughs> I, went, I went to this gym and I was sitting in the spa for about an hour, I swear to God, I was so wrinkled. And there was this Tongan guy called Kaliti and he was a bouncer at the Star Hotel across the road. So I was telling him what I wanted. He goes, oh, I work there. I know the owner, Brendan, you know, you should get, get dressed and I'll take you over and introduce you. And that was it. And that was the start of it. I got the job and did really well. Again, that story is like put yourself where the people are, where you think you might find, I mean, I wouldn't suggest a spa bath today that are in the places that you, you want to work at, right? And then from there I heard about the Cauldron, which was in Darlinghurst. And so I did an interview there when I was uh, 17, again, convincing that I was really great for the job. They only had male bartenders at the time, so the women were cocktail waitresses. But all the big celebrities that came to town used to come to the Cauldron. 
And it was a really interesting experience because I worked there for five years and I was the highest earning cocktail waitress in Sydney. So I used to sell like two grand's worth of drinks a night. I used to make two or $300 a night in tips. It was just such a, it was, a, it was the 80s. Everyone had just so much cash. But because of my, where I grew up and how I grew up, like I think I'd only seen maybe three movies before I moved to Sydney and I had a couple of records. My parents were really religious, so I didn't sort of have too much of a worldly kind of experiences. I wasn't really phased by celebrity. I didn't kind of really know anyone. And so when, you know, I remember the first time the owner, Charles Bataji, said to me, oh, Ludwina Hall and Oates are here. Can you look after them? And I said, who's that? Oh, no and I was like... I was 17. I was just, and he said to me, I'll never forget this. God love Charles. He said, Ludwini, you've got country written all over your face. Because I wasn't phased by anybody, they used to put me in charge of looking after them because I didn't get all starry eyed. And so I made all these really great friends who are all the big names. And no, I'm not going to name drop, but imagine anyone who came to Australia in the 80s. I've not just met them, I've been backstage, I've been to all the parties and still in touch with some of them. It was a time where I, again, more reference points, if you can be yourself. Yeah, so it was a great time and I learned how to sell, I learned how to build relationships, I knew how to contain myself, hold myself in a space, know my space, know my role in whatever space I was in and know when it was time to kind of let my hair down and have a bit of fun. I think hospitality is one of the best first jobs anyone can ever have. Where, where did you go after the hospitality? Where did it take you? Again, Sydney in the 80s was quite hedonistic. I just sort of got to a point after working in hospitality up there for, I think it was about 23, and I was just like, ah, probably need to go back home for a little while. Sorry, in between I spent a year in the States. So when I was 19, it was, okay, I'll name drop one. It was just after I met Julian Lennon for his world, world tour called Velotti. Uh, I became very good friends with his music director, Carmine, who was also his bass player, and Carmine Rojas has been musical director with David Bowie, Rod Stewart, Joe Bonamassa, you name it. He's he's a classic. And Carmine and I today and my husband Harry, we're, we're still good friends. So anytime Carmine comes to Australia, we end up at a concert. At that time, they were in Sydney for I think it was about 10 days or something and I spent quite a bit of time with them. They said, look, when you come to the US, come see us. So when, I went to the US later that year and then had this whole amazing time over there and ended up working in a club where 95% of the people, it was called the China Club, were A-grade celebrities and stuff. So that was a heck of a lot of fun. And so I did that, came back, worked back at the Cauldron again. And then just sort of the lifestyle was really absorbing. Like we'd work really late and then we'd stay up till about six, have a few drinks and then you go to sleep and then you're up again in the afternoon. It was just an exhausting lifestyle. And so I went back home in Aubrey and worked in the only nightclub in Aubrey called The Ritz. And then Started a small promotions agency at the same time while I was down there that did really well. So I did both at the same time. And then uh, my husband, Harry, came up from Melbourne for a golfing weekend and he was 23 and I was 24 when we met. Three weeks later, I moved to Melbourne and very quickly our son was conceived and we just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Thank That's you. amazing. So you mentioned you started a promotional agency down in Melbourne, obviously you're building a family. Where to from from there? From there, yeah. Well, just before I had Jordan, so while I was still pregnant, I was working in hospitality in some restaurants in St Kilda. A few months before he was born, I kind of, you know, had the realisation that probably not going to be able to do this after he's born or for too much longer. And at the time, so our first house was 105000 in Richmond, but the interest rates were 18%. And Harry was living at home, but... Family wasn't too happy at the time about us being pregnant so quickly and not married, so we kind of by then had to move in together. And I was at the time sharing a house with a guy, like a housemate. And so Harry came and moved in with us, so then we had rent and the mortgage. It was financially very tight. I, th- I have this thing about 
ask yourself really good questions. Your brain will give you some good answers. So I was like, what can I do with a, you know, while I'm breastfeeding a baby? I can clean houses. So I thought, okay, so I've got an A4 piece of paper and black texter, 25-year-old pregnant woman looking for house cleaning, $10 an hour, you know, willing to do washing, ironing, um, whatever it is that you need. Within three weeks, I had so much work, I had to hire my mother-in-law, <laughs> which is great because having a Greek mother-in-law help you clean is awesome yeah, because the they're just so yeah. good at cleaning. So Maria and I were just working together cleaning these houses and I'd have Jordan with me. And that, again, was a really strong reference point for me because when you think of where I was before, and, you know, the people that I was mingling with and what I was doing, how much money I was making. It's like, I always have this thing. If you're willing to stick your hand down someone else's toilet, you'll always have a job in this country. There was no room for pride. I just had to get the bills paid. And it was interesting because I gained a lot of respect through Harry's family, I think, at that time as well. And the, and it just really made a difference. And the other thing is that I was all, my mum taught me to sew. So my mother-in-law found these rolls of satin fabric they were just thrown out because the edges of them were singed, so there must have been a fire. And so I got these rolls and rolls of two-metre wide satin fabric and I made satin sheets and pillowcase sets for Christmas one year and sold them and it was just sort of living within your means doing what I could with the resources that I had Harry was working full-time at his job I was just really good at managing money and managing time and managing the kids and when I started to feel like I got a bit more freedom and mind you at the time you have to also remember that there was this whole conversation that was happening then. So my kids are 30 and 28. So back then it was like, oh, you know, if you were working outside of the home, you were considered a bad mother. And I was just like, well, I've always worked. I'm always going to work. I'll just work in a way that doesn't impact on me caring for my kids. That was my thing. I didn't want them to go to childcare. It wasn't a judgment. I just didn't want that. I wanted to be with them and I wanted to work. So I started doing this thing, um, Jigsaw Toy Factory. It was like a party plan model and it was kind of back then party plan was a really big thing for women wanting to start their own business or get in the workforce and within a year I was number 17 in sales in Australia which kind of didn't surprise me because I always like to be number one but I got to 17 but then after that I stopped and I wanted to do something else and and I and I just had this hunger to learn all the time and learning's like according to my Clifton Strengths report it's one of my top five strengths achievement learning relator communication uh, maximizer they're my strengths I just kept learning and then from there I, so my next kind of like light bulb moment, I was 28 and I decided I wanted to make a TV show. I was really passionate about understanding my curiosity about people, young people especially. It was at a time when young adults were starting to question a lot of things and, and I, because I started my maturity early, I was questioning it with them at that time and, and I thought, well, you know, let's just have a TV show. And it was analog days. I'd never touched a computer at that point. I think it was 30, the first time I ever touched a computer. I had never used a video camera, but I knew what I wanted to do. The show was called Straight Talk. It would be a panel of 10 to 15, 18 to 25-year-olds. And I would present it. And I would have people on both sides of the argument. And we would talk and discuss and break it down. 28, I'm now 56. That's nearly 30 years ago. I created a pilot. I gathered everyone around me that knew what they were doing. They loved my vision. They followed me. They had the skills. I had the vision. I had the gumption. Optus Vision had just launched their network cable channel at the time. I just took it to them and they loved the pilot, like the, the, the kind of promo video so much. They said, look, we'd really like you to produce it here. We'll provide you with a studio, outside broadcast fans so you can do box pops on the street. And we produced years full of episodes of this show and we were talking about mental health, homosexuality, relationships, politics, religion, pornography. We were talking about big subjects. 
And this was the analog days. This is before social media, before mobile phones, before digital, the internet. And I had Jim Steins on my episode where we talked about mental health. And um, God bless him, he's passed away a few years back. But, you know, he was a big advocate for um, mental health. So I went from there and then Optus Vision saw we were doing. They said, look, this is what we want to produce next year. What do you want to do? And so then I created TV.com. Back then, TV.com. I should have bought the URL. I know. <laughs> oh my god, it was you a crazy <laughs> show. It was so cool. It was unpacking all aspects of technology. I had a presenter, Troy Waller was his name, and we're still friends today. And it was kind of like a young Dave Letterman, really funny guy, and he was really good with tech. So we'd have him, and then we'd have this kind of we'd get some kind of geeky guy who was really like techno techno, and then Troy try, try and break it down. And it was a twenty-eight minute five camera live to air and I was directing it. So my school levels was increasing as I was going and then I learned to edit and then I, you know, went on from there and I just fell in love with tech. And then we started producing, the company was in Focus Productions and we started producing TV promo video, sorry, production videos for businesses and companies and we had a lot of work. And then Optus and Apple offered sponsorship for me to create a program that we could run in schools. Optus gave us an outside broadcast van and then Apple gave us the computer technology and editing systems we needed. And Media Minds was born. And Media Minds was a two-day hands-on video production workshop that we, 100 kids were involved over grade five, six. It covered all of their curriculum standard framework for grade five and six over that two-year period. And so the school ended up with a five-minute promo video that was produced and presented by the students. We ended up running them in over 300 schools in Adelaide, Brisbane and Melbourne. And then it was just kind of time for a change. I was in my early 30s and was doing a lot of self-reflection about my childhood and wanted to find my Indian family who I didn't grow up with. And so I was doing a lot of counselling and, and sort of self-preparation work for a lot of that and a lot of healing work. And then I just kind of like ended up on this route at that time, life coaching sort of started in Australia. And I did this online quiz of, and this thing spit it out. It said, you'd be a great life coach counsellor or something like that. I went, yeah, that'd be, yeah, that's me. I'm really good with helping people. And so I ended up doing this life coaching course at the first pretty much big coaching school that started in Australia. From there, I started the Red Tent Woman, which was a women's business network events company. And so women were really starting at that time to get themselves out there and starting to develop business skills and just really needed, I think at that time, it was really important that they kind of had some encouragement and leaders, uh, women leaders, that they could sort of see have gone and done it before. So I started these events and then at the end of the event, I'd sort of offer three half-hour free coaching sessions. Within three months, I was running three events in Melbourne and I was pulling like 20 grand plus a month in coaching clients. So we were running them in women's homes. We were able to not have the stress of the venue. We started in venues, but then we reduced that. So it was like everyone bring a plate and I had this Excel spreadsheet and it had a list of items that you could bring. And then you'd tick off which one you wanted to bring so we didn't double up. And if you wanted a drink, you brought your own wine. And then the ticket price was half what it normally would be. And so we had these running in women's homes all around. And then I'd train other women coaches who wanted to build up their coaching practice to do the same thing. And we were launching in Perth. And the day that we launched in Perth, I was in hospital and I was diagnosed with a 14-centimetre tumour on my kidney. And so that was my next three years. I'm... 12 years cancer-free, one kidney down, very healthy. You know, I was 44 at the time. It was a, you know, massive blow, but I had to recover. And while I was recovering, I just asked myself good questions again. And what can I do that doesn't require me to look good, feel good, or go anywhere that can keep my business brand alive? And guess what I started doing? Podcasting. Casting. <laughs> 2010. 2010. I had to teach people how to download a podcast on iTunes. And iTunes was the only podcast directory. I hit number one, you were nowhere. It was like, oh, I was in literally in bed in my pyjamas with a $20 Logitech headset 
and Audacity. Poppy King was my first guest. I just had this list of all these women I wanted to interview and I printed out photos of them and put them on my office wall from the number one, Poppy King, going all the way down. And I thought eventually someone's going to say yes. Well, Poppy King said yes. And then people started asking, oh, you know, gosh, how do you do that? And when I heard that three times, then I produced the podcast masterclass, which was an online six-week course, sold $10,000 worth of tickets before I even wrote the program, and that was an evergreen thing. And then I started, you know, how to podcast like a pro podcast show with Heather Porter, who's a friend of mine who was podcasting at the time. And, you know, from there then, you know, I had to have another surgery the following year and then another surgery the following year. And each of the times I had a surgery, I did something while I was recovering. And the second one, so first one was podcasting, second one was I wrote a book called It's That Easy Online Marketing 3.0. And then the third surgery, we launched the book in digital and print worldwide the day I was in hospital and then it was just like you know I used to use that time to learn just learning time and I I gave myself the space to recover and that led me really into this tech space where I am now and I met some incredible leaders and teachers interestingly who were men and it was the first time I started to get impacted by the influence of a male's mind in business and the switch that happened to me was phenomenal it was absolutely phenomenal Well, I think there's a few things there. One, that when you're in a position of leadership and you're leading other women, and this is a woman leading women, you're in that woman nurturing, caring. And, geez, I really hope that anyone listening to this, I just listen to it. It's my experience of. It's not everybody's experience. But at that time, again, you've got to take it back to the culture and time of how things were then. The women at the time were, they were learning from me, so I wasn't learning from them. So they weren't mentors to me, I was mentor to them. But then when I started to have these male mentors in my life, it was just like, oh, there's this other part of my brain that fired up, um, which I now, there's a balance between the two. And so there's a balance between the nurturing, caring, relational part of me and a balance between the analytical, logical numbers, processes, systems, so much to the point that they're equal. I can't do one without the other. And this really happened when I started the room exchange was the mentors that I had when I started it were primarily men. I think that was because, you know, capital raising and it was all about numbers and getting a data room set up and, and it just wasn't something that I looked for. It just happened that way. I find that when I get into certain different phases of my business, I start to attract different people. Right now I'm attracting a lot of women. And, again, I'm not saying that women aren't analytical, process-driven, but when you think about the numbers in reality, very few women that get funded in Australia, you know, you've got to understand the mind of men to be able to to pitch to them you can't just but you definitely if you're a woman in business you have to have men around you as well and right now I hope I make this really clear it's like when I was talking about running the women's events back then women were just starting to come into business and they really needed that sort of environment where they could be vulnerable and be themselves without feeling like they needed to compare themselves to men but today there's only one women's only group that I'm a part of um, and I refuse to otherwise because I miss out on the the glorious contribution that men can actually give to my mind in business. And and at the same token, I truly believe men should have their own spaces and time together. Women should have their own spaces and time together. But you also equally need to come together as well. So as much as it's important that, you know, women do, we do support women in bringing them up, providing them with opportunities that they want, that men have had the privilege of having opportunities for, but you don't fix a problem by completely eliminating the problem itself. You just have to acknowledge that that's been a problem. You can't blame the men today for that problem. You've got to say, okay, assume that the men today want the same thing, let's work together to make that happen. You've made a success out of so many of your ideas and and they took hold so quickly. How did you know what to do and how to piece them all together? 
Okay, so I'll break down one. So the women's tip. Okay, so at the time I realized that I wanted to work with women and coach women as in life coaching. I wrote a program for a three-day life innovation weekend, I called it, and I had 10 women pay 500 bucks each and come to this three-day, they go home at night, but, you know, come during the day and we'd help them work through problems. And, okay, this is what I do. I create the thing first. What is it that I want to do? I, I created the program. And the first one was called Self-Discovery Weekend. I didn't like it, the name of it, ended up changing it uh, to Life Innovation. But then just advertise, local newspaper, women that were in my network, did a, um, a free one for the first one so I could get testimonials from people. And then it also then gave me the opportunity to iron out the program and get feedback. Always got written feedback right at the event, not wait for an email. It's the worst way to do it. You get it right when they're feeling it at the end of the event. And then I would analyze that and then I would change. So that's th- that thing about I actually 75% for me is what I start with. And then I decided I was going to run them once a month. So then I needed to work back from that. So if I'm going to run it once a month and, and I need 10 people, I'm going to charge 500. But I first then my first one that I charged for, I only charged 300. And then I increased the prices went on until I became uncom- just a little bit uncomfortable with the price. Then that was where yeah. my comfort spot was, right? And then I, again, advertised through my network and then just gave referral fee if anyone just referred someone and, and I aimed for 10. Most of the time I got, you know, at least eight. Then out of that I'd end up with coaching clients. So what's the, what's the idea that you have? You don't start where you are right now and then try and create something. You need to visualise what it is that you want to make. Because you can't, you know, when you go up to a networking event and go, oh, what do you do? And someone says, oh, well, you know, I help people and, you know, I help them through their um, business problems and, you know, they come out the other end, you know, feeling much more confident and, and it's like I can't see what you're telling me. It's, there's not, nothing, it's too abstract. There's nothing specific in it for me to join the dots. But if you said I work with people who are starting a business for the first time in their life in their 50s, have no idea of the operational side of things and I help them set that up so that then they can develop their idea. All of a sudden you've got this, you form the idea and so then you're able to articulate it. You have to be able to describe that. So you need to be able to articulate that so that other people can understand it and then you shut up and then you wait. You use the art of the pause and then you let them then ask another question because in their mind they need to process what you've already told them and then let them ask a question that's relevant to them. Don't ever assume that you know what they're thinking and that what you're going to say they're going to understand because they could be coming, they may be having a problem in their life that they're thinking, oh, I wonder if she can help me with that. But if you don't stop long enough to let them have the space to ask it, you could say something that then takes them off on this completely different tangent and lose a client. Well, um, let's get on to the room exchange. So I would love to understand the origin story of this PropTech platform. So you mentioned you love technology. How did the idea come about? Most of the things that I've done have helped me solve something in my own life. My now 30-year-old, when he was 22 and he left home, at the time we the house that we raised our kids in, we were renting out and we were renting where we wanted to live because my husband started a business from home and so we needed more living spaces so we could both work from home. So I was paying rent for a three-bedroom house but there was only two bedrooms being used. And so I did what a lot of people do and I listed it on a short-term holiday platform. I love the experience of having random people coming and saying my house, but I didn't like the idea of getting having to spend four hours to get the entire house hotel ready. If it was just their bedroom and bathroom and the kitchen maybe, but even the yard had to be nice. Like it was just crazy. 50 bucks a night you get, right? 
But again, it taught me something. It taught me that I liked the experience, but not how it was happening. Then I stopped doing that. And then my daughter said to me that, who was still living at home, she said she had a friend who was traveling from France and was looking for somewhere cheap to stay. And at the time, my husband was doing some renovations on our rental property. He needed some help on weekends, painting and clearing out rubbish and stuff. So we said, well, look, if he's happy to help out eight hours or so over the weekend, we'll feed in housing. And so that happened. And then we got that work done faster. And then he moved on a couple of months later. Another one of Tiana's friends came along and same thing happened. And then he moved on. And then we had someone who came and stayed with us for 18 months, Guillaume, um, who's French Canadian. And he was lovely. And this was really when the idea sort of started to formulate. I, I, I never did any housework and Guillaume was really fastidious. He he openly is OCD and we love OCD people living with us because, you know, they love organising. Um, I mean, even when he would help me prep the dinner, he'd have the wedges all perfectly lined up in a row. It was so gorgeous. He was just really beautiful to live with and he was able to have his, he was here on a working holiday visa, so he was able to not pay for accommodation and just do what he loved, which he loved organising and tidying. And then my friends started saying, this is a great idea. Where can I find someone? And again, three times when I hear the same thing, oh, there might be something in this. And so Harry and I had a chat about it. And then Harry said, look, I think this is, this could be like a global thing, you know? And I went, yeah, probably couldn't. And he said, good, you should do it. This is the end of the first part of the episode. Coming up next will be the second and final part where we continue speaking about the genesis of the Room Exchange and how Ludwina has been building this platform to tackle some serious issues in the Australian housing market. Catch you in the next part.